realized, uh, <clears throat> John, when you stood up, I realized I forgot to announce we have a baptism in a couple of weeks. Uh, and it's because John and Darla um, have been faithfully working with uh, some of our young people, and there's some young people that want to get baptized on the 23rd. So um, if you haven't been baptized, uh, come talk to us. We would love to have you know more than just a handful of folks uh, get baptized, but I'll be here uh, after service. So probably more details to come uh, as that gets a little bit closer, um, but thankful uh, for that. <clears throat> We're making our way through First uh, Peter. And there are two particularly difficult passages uh, in the book of Peter. Oh, yeah, children, sorry. Thanks for the reminder. You can go to your class. <laughs> sorry, just so eager to get into this today. Um, yeah, there, there are two particularly difficult passages, and by luck of the draw, I got them both. Uh, and today is one of them. First uh, Peter chapter 3, starting in verse uh, 18. So up to this point uh, in uh, Peter, Peter's been talking a lot about just various kinds of suffering uh, that we deal with uh, as Christians, that we deal with, some that we deal with just as humans being in a, in a world riddled with sin, um, but more specifically the suffering of living a Christian life uh, in a sin-filled world. And Peter has talked about uh, what it is to suffer um, for our faith, He's talked about what it is to suffer under an unjust government. Uh, he's talked about what it is to suffer under unjust working conditions. Uh, he's talked about what it is to suffer with injustice even in the home. Right? So kind of the three, three major spheres that we're in, just the, the public sphere, um, our, our jobs uh, and our homes and how suffering can happen uh, in all of those. And his encouragement to us uh, is to remember that, that this world is not our final destination. Uh, and to remember that Christ suffered. And because Christ suffered as Christians, that word literally means little Christs, because Christ suffered, then we ought to expect that we would suffer to some extent as well uh, and not be surprised by it, but remember that our Savior suffered uh, as well and that we would take encouragement from that. And so as we get into this passage, this is the context uh, that, that we've been in for several weeks now. And so as we jump into 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 18, he says, For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And so we'll pause there for just a moment. Again, Peter reminds us that, that Christ has suffered, and as Christians that we should expect that suffering as well. Uh, and the context of that suffering is that Christ suffered. Okay, he's sympathetic to us. Hebrews talks about that we have a high priest who is not unsympathetic to us, that, that he has lived the way that we lived. And sometimes, if you're like me, you can look at suffering in the world, our own suffering, or just even uh, other people's suffering, and we question it. You know, why, God? Why do we, why do we have to suffer? Why, why do bad things happen to good people, right? We've all probably asked that question at one point in our lives, we question, is there any even meaning to our suffering? And Peter tells us that not only did Christ suffer, but he suffered once for sins. In other words, there was meaning to Christ's suffering. And we should draw encouragement to the fact that Christ suffered for you and for I. But in order to, to understand this, I think we have to back up uh, a little bit before we move forward in our passage. Christ suffered once for sins. Well, what is that? Why, why is that a big deal? Why is that a big deal? Let, let's back up into our Old Testament history, 
right? Some of you may be versed in the Old Testament, some of you not, and that's okay. Um, but as we think about our Old Testament history, we back up into the book of Exodus, God gave Moses 10 commandments. Basically, that time establishing what righteous living is within these 10 commandments. And he gave those to Moses. And if you know the story, Moses comes down the mountain with these 10 commandments to find the nation of Israel. They, they had crafted a false god and they were worshiping a false god, right? Right on the heels of God giving them this standard for righteousness. These 10 commandments were the way that God desired for people to live. And when that standard was broken, and again, if you know your Old Testament history, we know that the standard was broken pretty often, right, through, through the nation of Israel. There was a system that God put into place in order to atone for the sin of the people, in order to make up for the wrongdoing of the people. And we call this the sacrificial system. And, and there were all kinds of rules to the sacrificial system, depending on how you sinned, would depend on how the sacrificial system worked in your particular circumstances. So you would have to essentially go get an animal and sacrifice this animal, right? It's established pretty early on in the Bible that, that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And so, so God gave these 10 commandments, this standard of righteousness. And when that standard was broken, he instituted the sacrificial system that said, depending on your sin, you would do a certain kind of a sacrifice. So shed the blood of an animal in order for your sin to be atoned for. And, this was just a vicious cycle, if you read through the Old Testament. Wash, rinse, repeat, wash, rinse, repeat, wash, rinse, repeat. The people would sin. They would sacrifice. They would do okay for a while. They would sin. They would sacrifice. They would do okay for a while. They would sin. They would sacrifice. They would do okay for a while. But the point of it was is that this just went on and on and on and on throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. And part of me has to believe that God did this on purpose. God does everything on purpose, right? God, God is sovereign, we would say, and he's in control of everything through all of time and space and the entirety of the cosmos. And so, so God's not trying to figure out things as he goes, right? All, all of this is on purpose. And I think the purpose of this or a purpose of this was for the people to realize that there's no end to the atonement of sin, there's no end to the atonement of sin. As a matter of fact, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 10, starting in verse 4, says that it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. And then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And so Jesus establishing that, that he would be the once for all sacrifice to atone for sins. Because the people, they keep sinning and they keep atoning and they keep sinning and they keep atoning, but, but there's no end to this. And Jesus basically says, I'm going to put an end to it. I'm going to be the once for all sacrifice according to the plan and the will of the Father. And so early on in the Old Testament, we get this picture with the Ten Commandments of God's righteousness, God's righteous standard for how Christians ought to live. And we also get this picture of the unrighteousness of humanity because we keep breaking the Ten Commandments. And I don't know if you know this, but, but the nation of Israel, Ten Commandments wasn't good enough for them. Do you know that they took those Ten Commandments and eventually made them into over 600 laws? That as an Israelite, not only would you be responsible to know all of these 600 and some odd laws, but you would be required to follow them. And so, as if it wasn't 
hard enough to just follow 10 rules. They made a whole bunch more, and they couldn't follow any of these rules. And, and so we just see in the Old Testament that God is righteous, and we see that humans are unrighteous. And we see that there's this never-ending cycle of sin and atonement and sin and atonement and sin and atonement. And so Jesus, we're told here in Peter, that he suffered, but his suffering wasn't meaningless. His suffering was for a purpose. And the purpose of his suffering is that, that he would suffer once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. This great trade. I remember when I was a kid, when I was in middle school, we like baseball cards were life, right? We would get together after, so we'd go to the hardware store, uh, Mayfield hardware store it was, and we'd go buy our pack of Topps baseball cards that had that disgusting stick of gum in it. And we would buy packs of cards, and then we would go to a buddy's house who lived close by. There was about six or seven of us. And we had our Beckett guides, right, the, kind of the official uh, price guide for baseball cards. We had our Beckett guides, and we, we would look up, and, you know, if you got most cards were like three or four cents or something like that, and that was kind of a bummer. But if you got one that was a couple dollars or five dollars, I mean, it was like we hit the lottery as middle schoolers, right? Well, sometimes, you know, if, if everybody didn't have their Beckett guide, you know, may, maybe I got a, a $2 uh, or somebody got a $2 card, and I would say, hey, I'll, I'll, I'll give you this whole pack of cards, which were all like three or four cent cards you know, for your $2 card. And we would trade, and, and like we were pretty stoked if we'd come out ahead on a trade like this. And sometimes, like, we would dupe each other. That's what good friends do, right? We would dupe each other into making these stupid trades, and we would come out ahead. P- Peter reminds us that, that Jesus initiated this trade, the righteous for the unrighteous. His holiness, his perfection, his obedience to the Father. Jesus lived a life that you and I are not capable of living. Jesus lived a life that perfectly submitted to the will of his Father. And he was obedient. There was no sin found in him at all. 1 Corinthians 5.22 reminds us that Jesus became sin, that he who knew no sin became sin, so that you and I could become the righteousness of God. This is way better than any baseball card trade that I ever executed. That Jesus took everything that was horrible and ugly and disgusting and gross and unrighteous about me. And he says, you know what? I'm going to take that. And in return, I'm going to trade and I'm going to give you my righteousness, my perfection. The life that I live that you could never live. So that when the father looks at you, he doesn't see your sin and he doesn't see your unrighteousness. He doesn't see your disobedience, but he sees my perfection and my righteousness and my disobedience. What an incredible trade that is. If you're here today as a follower of Christ, that trade has been made. And you can rest in the fact that that Christ has done for you what you could and would never do for yourself. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. And why did he do this? Why did he make this amazing trade? He did it so that he might bring us to God. We see, again, backing up into the Old Testament, into Genesis, the first three chapters, recorded history as we know it. Three chapters into creation, do you know what happened? That There was a time where humanity was in perfect harmony, where the creation was in perfect harmony with the Creator. We don't know how long it lasted, but it, but it was for a time. And one day, the first humans that God created, Adam and Eve, they decided to rebel. The creation revolted against the creator. And as a result, every human that came after them has this inherent 
rebellion inside of them, this inherent, so we inherited it from Adam and Eve. And so by nature, the Bible tells us that, that we are sinners, that the creation has rebelled against the creator. And that rebellion, do you, do you know what happened when Adam and Eve sinned? Adam and Eve did the one thing that God told them not to do, and then they ran and they hid. They hid, and that shows us right in the, the very beginning of the Bible that it's our sin that creates a barrier in our relationship with the Creator. Adam and Eve sinned, and they were ashamed of their sin, and so they went and hid. They hid from God because now the relationship that was once perfect was now broken. It wasn't perfect any longer as a result of, of their rebellion. And we're told in Genesis 3.15, it's prophesied that, that God has this plan in place to reconcile sinful humans with a righteous creator. And that involved God himself stepping into human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, living the life that you and I could never live, doing for us what we could never do for ourselves, so that he could restore the relationship between created beings and a creator. So that he could work through our unrighteousness, that, that he could forgive us of our unrighteousness, that he could atone for our sin, that he could do something for us that the sacrificial system was never capable of doing. So that he could bring us to God. He suffered once for the sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And how is it that he did this? Peter says that he was put to death in the flesh. If the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ ended at the death of Christ, if that was the end of the story, which it's not, but if that were the end of the story, then the message of the gospel would be a tragic story of terrible things that happened to a good man. But that's not the end of the story. Jesus was put to death because of our sin. There's a song that we sing that has a line that says that it was our sin that held him there. Right? It wasn't the nails that held him to the cross. It was our sin that held him to the cross. He who knew no sin became sin for us. He took on the punishment that you and I rightfully deserved for our rebellion. And as a result, he was put to death. In place of you and I, we rightfully deserve death for our sin. But Jesus was put to death in the flesh, but the story doesn't end there. Peter reminds us that not only was he put to death in the flesh, but he was made alive in the spirit. In other words, death could not hold him down. Jesus conquered death, and in conquering death, he defeated sin. Is there any one of us here that's capable of conquering death? No. Jesus did for us what we could and would never do for ourselves. So his suffering led to his death, which would be tragic, again, if that were the end of the story, but it's not. Jesus conquered death, defeated sin, and made a way for the broken relationship between the creator and the creation to be restored. God did for us in Christ what we could and would not do for ourselves. And this is the message of the gospel. This is the very simple message of the gospel. This is why we do what we do because of this, this one sentence that we read. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And so Peter is giving us this reminder in the middle of this kind of diatribe on suffering, reminding us that, that there's a message of the gospel that's true.
And as we look towards eternity, we're, we're finite beings and we can't wrap our minds around eternity. We, it's just an impossible task for us. But, but as we think about the life to come, as we think about eternity, we do so in context of what Christ has done for us. And then in verse 19, this is where the passage starts to get weird. It says that he was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Now, Peter's done a great job in one sentence kind of summing up the gospel for us, and then he throws in this weird thing about Christ preaching to spirits in the days of Noah. We're, we're, we're probably not going to solve this mystery today, I'll just tell you that right now. Uh, so don't, don't expect that you're going to walk away from here with like the answer to what this is. I'm, I'm going to give you some possibilities of uh, people much smarter than me, uh, where they kind of land on this, and, and you can you know kind of pick one of the options if you want, uh, or we can just let it remain a bit of a mystery. But there's a bigger message in this <clears throat> that I hope to draw out today. So we're told that that Jesus died in the flesh and he was made alive in the spirit, and then he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. And so we have a couple of questions immediately. So so what did Jesus proclaim, and, and who are these spirits, right? Um, well, there's there's some options about who the spirits are. We'll get to a moment here and what Jesus may have proclaimed. But there are a few options about who these spirits are. The New Testament almost exclusively uses the term spirit to refer to non-human beings. And so if that's, poss- if that's true, then the possibilities would be that these would be uh, angelic spirits who have fallen. Um, there would be a second possibility that these are departed spirits of those who died as believers. Uh, and then a third possibility would be departed spirits of those who died in unbelief, the spirits of, of the ungodly. Um, there could be arguments for all of those possibilities that would make them kind of make sense. Um, but again, I'm, I'm hoping to draw kind of a look at this a little more broadly than getting stuck in the weeds about, about some of these things. Um, we're told in the passage that whoever these spirits were, that they formerly did not obey God when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. We're told that a few, eight people to be exact, uh, were brought safely through the waters. And so this kind of calls our attention immediately back to Genesis chapter 6, the account of the flood uh, and Noah building the ark. And so just to kind of give you a recap of this in Genesis, uh, God tells Noah that, that he's going to bring judgment on the earth. The Bible tells us that the, the thoughts and the intentions of mankind in the days of Noah were always continually sinful. And the Bible tells us that God was sorrowful that he created mankind. Not, not sorry in that he made a mistake, not regretful that he messed up. It doesn't mean that at all. But, but that God was heartbroken over the sinfulness of humanity. Humanity had gotten to such a point by the time we get to Genesis chapter 6 that their thoughts were always evil, continuously, we're told. And that broke God's heart to see humanity flourishing in their sin. Okay? And so God tells Noah that I want you to build this really big boat. When I was a kid, I grew up in the church. When I was a kid, we had a, a song that we would sing in Sunday school about building the arky, arky with gopher, barky, barky. Maybe, I don't know if any of you remember that. I don't remember exactly how the song goes. But we had a cute song that would help us remember this passage. And God tells Noah, build this really big boat, 
and put some animals in it, and and one day, like, the rains are going to come, going to flood the earth and, and bring judgment upon humanity because of their sinfulness. Right? So this was a cute Sunday school story that had a cute song, but but in reality, this is not a cute story at all. This is God getting to a point where he's so heartbroken over the sinfulness of humanity that, that he's got to do something about it. And, and that's not a good thing. And so as we're considering this passage in Peter, we're told that Jesus that he proclaimed to these spirits, whoever they were, and that these spirits somehow correlate to what was happening in the days of Noah. And so here's five options from, uh, like I said, theologians, uh, far more intelligent, far more studied than I, uh, kind of five popular, uh, we would say, options of, of what happened here. So one option would be uh, that Peter is saying that Jesus went to hell and he preached the gospel to sinners, offering them another chance to repent. I don't necessarily land there because uh, the Bible teaches that it's appointed once for a person to die. And, and before that point comes, we have our opportunity to repent. So, so I, don't, I don't think that that's a biblically sound argument that Jesus went to hell and preached the gospel to sinners and gave them another chance. But like I said, people far more intelligent than I kind of land there. Uh, a second option would be that Jesus went to this sort of a purgatory uh, to liberate Old Testament believers. The thought behind this is that when an Old Testament believer died, that they went to kind of this waiting area, um, sort of like a purgatory, not exactly that, but, but something along those lines, uh, and that Jesus went there uh, to liberate those Old Testament believers. Uh, a third option would be uh, that Jesus proclaimed his victory to the evil angels who are mentioned in Genesis chapter 6. Now, we haven't talked about that yet. So, so it talks about in Genesis chapter 6 that, that the sons of God came and they married the daughters of man. And, and there's, that's a whole other subject for another day. We're not going to crack that nut today. But Genesis tells us that, that some, something weird happened uh, where some people got together that weren't supposed to get together, and they did, and it was uh, wrong and, and sinful. And so a third view of this Peter passage would be that Jesus went to those people um, uh, right before the account of the flood. Um, a fourth option would be that the spirit of Jesus preached through Noah to the disobedient people of Noah's day, right? We're told uh, in John chapter one that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and that all things that were created were created through him, that there wasn't anything created at all that wasn't created through Jesus, right? So, so Jesus isn't bound by space and time like you and I are bound by space and time. So, so this fourth view would be that it was actually the spirit of Jesus that was preaching through Noah to the disobedient people of his day. And it's thought in this view that it's possible that those people um, at the time of Peter's writing, it's thought that maybe they were in some sort of a prison uh, awaiting judgment. And Peter could be saying that Jesus went to them and proclaimed not a second chance, but that he kind of took a victory lap with these people um, proclaiming his victory over sin and over death. And a fifth option would be that Peter says, he gives us an order, right? Jesus suffered, he died, he was made alive, and then he preached to the spirits. And so if we just kind of take this plain reading and we look at the order that Peter says things happened, it would be that this preaching took place after Jesus' resurrection to the people of his day, who similarly to the people of Noah's day were disobedient and sinful. 
So those are kind of five real popular options. Like I said, I'm, I'm not going to land on, on one of those necessarily today. But what I think that we can draw out of this that's the bigger picture is that Jesus secured a victory with his life and with his death. He didn't stay dead. He conquered death. And in conquering death, he defeated sin. And whoever these spirits were, it seems plausible that his message was a message of victory. Not a message of a second chance for people who had previously denied him. That just doesn't seem plausible. But what seems plausible is that Jesus is proclaiming a victory to whoever these spirits are. Letting them know that he's conquered death. That he's done what they could not do for themselves. And so whatever the right interpretation of this, I think we can say for certain that we can revel in the fact that Christ won a victory. That you and I were powerless to win without him. And that he's proclaiming that victory to you and to I through Peter's writing, proclaiming the victory that he had over sin. And so however far into the weeds you want to get with trying to figure out you know, who, who the prisoners were and who the spirits were and how all this happened, know that Christ has won a victory that you were powerless to win, uh, that he did for you, again, what you could and would never do for yourself. And so what I think Peter's doing here is he's, he's proclaiming to us our salvation, right? In the midst of this diatribe on suffering, he's reminding us that Christ has secured a victory. Whether your suffering is at home, whether your suffering is at work, whether your suffering is under an unjust government, that Christ has won a victory that, that we partially realize now this side of heaven. But, but when we're on the other side of eternity, we're going to fully realize this victory. And Peter's saying, hang on. Because that time's coming. In the grand scheme of eternity, the 60, 70, 80, 90 years, if you're lucky, 100 years, if you're even luckier that you get on this earth, it's, it's, it's this much in the scope of eternity. It's just a little bit in the scope of eternity. And Peter is reminding us to think eternally. He's reminding us of our salvation. And then as we get into verse 21, it gets a little more weird. There's another weird thing in this passage. Um, he's reminding us that these eight people, which were Noah and his wife and Noah's three sons and their wives that were saved through the actions of Noah. In verse 21, he says that baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so, so if Peter didn't want to just give us one weird thing to wrestle with, he gives us this other kind of hard thing to understand, to wrestle with. He, he tells us that, that whatever this thing that happened with Noah, this picture of Noah in Genesis chapter 6, God bringing judgment on the earth for the sinfulness of mankind, he says that it corresponds to baptism, and he says that baptism now saves you. Now, we're not a church that, that believes that the act of baptism in and of itself saves anybody, right? We, we, we just don't subscribe to that belief. There are some churches that do subscribe to that belief. We're, we don't subscribe to the belief that baptism in and of itself saves anyone. And so we immediately look at this and say, okay, well, what is, what is Peter saying? Is, is there a, a disconnect in um, you know, what we would subscribe to as orthodox doctrine? Is Peter saying something here that's not orthodox? And I don't think that's the case. He tells us that this baptism that it's corresponding to is not, not for the removal of dirt off of our bodies. It's not about cleaning ourselves up so that we can come to Christ, right? That's, what, that's where Christ does for us what we are incapable of doing for ourselves, the righteous for the unrighteous, 
Right? We're not capable of cleaning ourselves up enough to where Christ looks at us and says, okay, you're in. We're not capable of that. That's why we need Christ. If we were capable of doing that, there would be no need for Christ. If there was anything that we could do to attain righteousness apart from Christ, we would not need Christ. So it's important that we understand and remember this. So he says that this baptism isn't about a removal of dirt from the body. It's not about cleaning yourself up, but it's an appeal to God for a good conscience. And, and so again, we have to wonder, um, you know, is there power in the act of baptism? Sometimes we look at baptism as something that we do for God. Right? We come to faith in Christ and, and, and we get baptized. We see that pattern in the New Testament that people immediately upon coming to faith would get baptized. We're, we're not a church that would subscribe to saying that baptism is something that we even do for God. We, we would subscribe to the idea that baptism is a picture of what God in Christ has done for us that we could and would never do for ourselves. And so even me saying I want to get baptized and me physically taking a step into the water, the purpose of baptism is not about me doing this thing for God. It's about a picture showing the church, reminding us all every time someone gets baptized that God has done for us something that we couldn't do for ourselves. And Peter is saying that this thing with Noah correlates to this. There was a movie that came out several years ago, if anybody saw it, with, with Russell Crowe, where he played Noah. I think the movie was maybe even just called Noah. Not 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 recommending the movie. I don't, I don't think it's a great movie uh, in terms of, you know, it's biblical accuracy. But there was this one scene in the movie that, to this day, is just sobering to me. Like I said, I grew up in the church, and we had you know, cute songs that we would sing about, you know, the ark and Noah and all of these things. But in this this movie... There's a scene where you know Noah finishes the ark and he takes his family into the ark and, and it's dark, right? No electricity back then, so there's no light inside the ark. The rains start to come and water shooting up from the ground and it's kind of this really you know kind of massive you know thing where you know the earth gets flooded. And there's a scene where Noah is sitting on the ground and he's kind of curled up, you know, kind of grabbing his knees, maybe even rocking back and forth a little bit, and, and you hear the rain just pounding on the ark. And you hear people outside of the ark and they're screaming and they're banging on the ark. Let us in, let us in. It's a really haunting scene that like they don't teach you that in Sunday school about that part of the story. But that's one thing that that movie for, for all of its other flaws, like I think that was one thing that movie got right. There's this haunting, sobering scene of the people who didn't make it onto the ark and God's judgment in that moment. Here's why I bring this up and, and what's interesting about this passage. The, the same water that brought judgment, the same water that flooded the earth and wiped out every single human except for eight people inside the boat, the same water that brought judgment on the sinful, disobedient people of that day is the same water that carried eight people in a boat to salvation. It's the same water. It's the same water. And so we see this idea with baptism that, that God, a holy, righteous God, who gives us a standard of how to live, that, that there's judgment that comes as a result of us breaking that standard of righteous perfection. And so as we consider the waters of baptism, when, when we go down into the water of baptism, it's a picture of death and it's a picture of dying. It's a picture of 
God's judgment. Romans chapter 3 tells us the wages of sin is what? It's death. And so when we go down in the waters of baptism, it's a picture of all of those things. It's a picture of the people of Noah's day on the outside of the boat banging, let us in, let us in, we're going to die. And they did die apart from the intervention of God. God intervened with, with Noah's family. And that same water carried them to salvation. And so as as we come up out of the waters of baptism, it's a picture of life and it's a picture of resurrection. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 again tells us that that the old has gone and that the new has come, that, that we die to this old life of sin which brings death and that we rise to a new life of righteousness, not because of what we've done, not because of who we are, but we rise to this new life of righteousness because of who Christ is and because of what Christ has done for us. This is the correlation that Peter is trying to make in this analogy. That our baptism, he says, it's an appeal to God for a good conscience. And and the reason that I brought up earlier that baptism is not something that we do for God, we don't look at God and say, God, I got baptized, you should be proud of me. Because that's not the point of baptism. Our appeal to God for a good conscience is that that I've died with Christ and I've been raised with Christ. And so the appeal that we make to God in baptism is not what I'm doing. The appeal that we make to God in baptism was what Christ has done for us. And this is what Peter is reminding us of here. Our good conscience comes not as a result of anything good that we might do. Our good conscience comes because of the righteousness of Christ, because he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Our appeal to the Father is look at who Jesus is and look at what Jesus has done, not to look at me. And so he gives us in this an illustration of salvation. And then in verse 22, he goes on to say, that Jesus has gone into heaven and he's at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. And in this, I think he gives us some assurance of our salvation. If the story of Jesus ends in any other way than what Peter just said right here, I don't think we could have assurance of salvation. If the message of the gospel ends even with Christ ascending to heaven, but not sitting at the right hand of the Father and not having everything subject to him, I think we could worry about the security of our salvation. But because Peter reminds us that the story ends not only with Jesus going into heaven, not only with him sitting at the right hand of God, but angels, authorities, and powers are all subjected to him. Philippians chapter 2 reminds us that there's going to come a day where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess on heaven and on earth, willingly or unwillingly, that Jesus Christ is Lord. There's going to come a day where there's no question in anybody's mind, even if they begrudge it, that they're going to confess that Jesus is Lord and they're going to bow the knee to him. And that's how the story ends. Everything's subject to Christ. He controls everything. He rules everything. He holds everything together. And that's how it ends. And because we have faith that that's how it ends, then I can stand here today and say, my salvation is secure. I can't mess this up. I can mess a lot of things up, but I can't mess up my salvation. I could do something to every one of you today that would mess up the relationship that we have. I could say something. I could give you a look. 
I could treat you in a certain way that might mess up our relationship in a way that's not able to be repaired. But we can't mess up the relationship that we have with God because of who Jesus is and because of what he's done and because of what he's secured for us. He's in heaven at the right hand of God and everything is subject to him. One commentator says that while this text is difficult to decipher, Peter's message is not. It's better to suffer for doing good rather than do evil because God will vindicate those who endure righteous suffering just as he vindicated his beloved son through suffering. If God is for us, who can be against us? No one, because even the demonic realm is under Jesus' authority. In the midst of suffering, we can take heart that God is at work to sustain us in our suffering and to bring us through that suffering to himself, to the vindication and glory that Christ suffered in order to offer us. The Bible puts this in maybe a different way in Romans 8, 31 to 39. The Apostle Paul says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, the Apostle Paul says, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is what Peter is reminding us of in the midst of maybe a couple of difficult things to decipher. He's reminding us that Christ suffered, that he did so once. In other words, to end the sacrificial system, the wash, rinse, repeat of sin, atone, sin, atone, sin, atone. And that he did so that he might bring us to God. And that he did so through conquering death, through conquering sin. And he's reminding us that, that not only has Christ secured our salvation, but he's also assured our salvation because at the end of the day, everything is under his rule and under his authority. And he's the only one that can secure your salvation and mine. We, we live in a culture today that it's popular to think that kind of all roads get you there. We, we live in a culture where there's a lot of people writing things about universalism, right? You have your God, I have my God, but at the end of the day, kind of everything gets us there. And what Peter's saying is not everything gets you there. There's one thing that gets you there, one person that gets you there, and it's Jesus Christ. There is no other God, no other deity perceived or whatever, no other deity at the end of the day can say that everything is under their authority. Jesus can say everything is under their authority because he conquered death. The grave could not hold him. And so we can have some assurance that, that whatever this life throws at us, whatever kind of suffering this life brings our way, and none of us is immune to it, right? we all suffer to some extent. 
No matter what kind of suffering this life might bring our way, Jesus has done for us the thing that we could and would not do for ourselves. And Peter is reminding us of that and calling us to have faith in what Jesus has done. Not in what I can do, but in what Christ has done for us. And that's always our message. That's always the message of our preaching. That's always the message of our singing, being reminded of who Christ is and what Christ has done for us. And so my encouragement to you today is that you would be encouraged by the assurance of salvation, that you would take encouragement from the illustration of salvation, the proclamation of salvation, uh, and that you would be secure in your salvation if you're here today and if you're a follower of Christ. If you're here today and and you don't know Christ and you're not a follower of Christ, if all of these things are true, what's stopping you from following Christ? Come talk to us after the service today and we would love to talk to you more about what it means to follow Christ so that you can be secure in your salvation. Let's pray. Father, today we're grateful. Grateful that you love us, grateful that you care for us, grateful that we have your word to remind us of who you are and what you've done for us. And so God, I pray that you would help us today with fresh eyes and fresh ears that we would see, that we would hear, that we would know in a way that maybe we haven't seen or heard or known before, that we would be reminded what you've done for us, that we'd be reminded of the truth of the gospel, that we would take fresh encouragement in the truth of the gospel, and that you would help us to be people uh, that live as if the gospel is true and as if the gospel matters. Help us today, even in our celebration of moms today, God, that we would look at it through the lens of the gospel, that that you have done for us things that we could and would never do for ourselves and help us to be people that carry the truthful message of the gospel um, into our workplaces, into our homes, into the public sphere, anywhere and everywhere that we go. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.